Well, we're actually not going to make the uh, Jesus, Jesus predicts Peter's denial section today because these four, uh, first four verses, uh, there's just so much in these four verses that I didn't want to get to the other stuff yet. So we're going to slow it down, take a small chunk today and look at it. Now, you have to understand that this section begins what really could be seen as Jesus' last words. And so as, been, as I've been thinking about last words this week, uh, I, last words really intrigue me. Um, there's a lot of people who, as they've died, their last words have been recorded for us. Friends wrote them down or passed them around. And, and you know, there's all kinds of different last words. Some of them are really admirable. Like uh, Thomas Becket, the Archbishop of Canterbury, when he was dying, he said this, I am ready to die for my Lord, that in my blood the church may obtain liberty and peace. I mean, that's an admirable last words. I mean, don't you love to hear that? There are some not-so-admirable last words. Uh, really, there's sad last words when you really stop and think about it. For instance, P.T. Barnum, who was the entrepreneur, and you know him from Barnum and Bailey, and, and his dying words were, how were the receipts today at Madison Square Garden? I mean, you know, you put your whole life, and that's what you want to know. I mean, that's sad to me. Uh, Queen Elizabeth I of England, she died in 1603. Her last words were, all my possessions for a moment of time. And then I think if you like American history at all, you'd be uh, fascinated by uh, John Adams, who sort of had this friendship feud with Thomas Jefferson. And on his dying bed, which is interesting, uh, they both died on July 4th. Thomas Jefferson and John Adams both died, at the, but they were far apart and they had no idea each other was dying. And uh, John Adams' last words were, Thomas Jefferson still lives. I mean, I just, that's sad to me, you know? I mean, the last thing you're going to utter, and that's there. Um, and then there's this whole other category of last words that, you know, I'm a little twisted and warped, and I find some humor in them, so we'll just classify them as very interesting last words, okay? Voltaire, uh, a famous guy, he was on his dying bed, and someone came to him, and as he was dying, said, Voltaire, you need to swear off Satan right now before you die. And Voltaire said, this is no time to make new enemies. <laughs> I like that. All right. In, in Ethan Allen, an, uh, another uh, picture in American history in response to a doctor who was attempting to comfort him by saying, General, I fear that the angels are waiting for you. Ethan Allen said, waiting, are they? Waiting, are they? Well, let them wait. <laughs> I just like that. Um, lady Nancy Astor, who I have no idea who this is, but it struck me as funny. She was in and out of consciousness as she was dying. And at one moment she, she woke up, uh, and looked around and she saw her entire family gathered around her. And she said, am I dying or is this my birthday? <laughs> All right. The, uh, two, two others here, uh, a famous one by, uh, Dominique Bahors, a French grammarian who died in 1702 on his deathbed, he said, I am about to or I am going to die. Either expression is correct. <laughs> and Spike Milligan, a comedian, <laughs> which I would love to say something like this on my dying bed. He said, see, I told you I was ill. <laughs> All right, so... Uh, you know, I heard a joke once about a guy named Jack. He had died. He was wealthy. His lawyer is standing before the family, and he's reading Jack's last will and testament. And he said, to my dear wife, Esther, I leave the house 
50 acres of land and $1 million. To my son, Barry, I leave my big Lexus and the Jaguar. To my daughter, Susie, I leave my yacht and $250,000. And to my brother-in-law, Jeff, who always insisted that health is better than wealth, I leave my treadmill. (laughs) You know, uh, last words and farewell speeches, you know, they're sometimes a laughing matter. They're not always that. Usually they're a serious matter. A person giving their farewell remarks wants to say something significant. And we ought to listen to them. In John chapter 13, verse 31, Jesus is beginning his farewell speech. Remember, we went to book two of the gospel of John. And in this last book two, chapters 13 through the end of the book, really, it's this last week of Jesus condensed into a lot of material. I mean, John spent the first 12 weeks dealing with the first three and a half years of Jesus' ministry and life. He takes the last half of the book to deal with just these, really, these few days. And so Jesus' last words and thoughts are packed into this farewell speech. Now, you have to understand the Jewish background of the farewell speech. This was a common device to first century Jews. The people were fascinated with deathbed speeches. I mean, if you look back, even in the Old Testament, if you go back to a guy like Jacob in Genesis 49, he gives this deathbed speech. And Moses does it in Deuteronomy chapter uh, 31 to 34. Joshua, if at the end of this, his book, I love Joshua's farewell speech. He tells the people, he says, oh, follow the Lord with your whole heart. And all the people gathered around him and as, as he's dying say, we will. And then he says, no, you won't. <laughs> and then he's, they say, no, really, Joshua, we, we will. And he says, yes, serve the Lord, follow him. And they say, we will. And he says, no, you won't. <laughs> and it goes on and on and on like this, you know. I mean, but he's trying to get the point across. Farewell speeches were very common. And there's always these elements in these farewell speeches. There's a concern for those who are being left behind. There's this exhortation to press forward and continue. And then there's this sort of this final blessing at the end of the farewell speech. And this sets the framework for the next four or five chapters of the Gospel of John. And we're going to be in this for a while. So this is a really long farewell speech. And we're going to be in this for a while. But what you need to understand today, and the reason I picked these just few four or five verses, is because there's one verse in in this section. There's this one verse that is about to set the tone for the entire farewell speech. Now, before I get there, I need to review a little bit with you. Ten months ago, we started this series in John. And uh, it's going to take us about, oh, about 15 to 17 months to get through this entire gospel by the time we get to the end. Ten months ago, we started. And we, as I told you, we've, the gospel can be divided in two halves. The book of signs, the book of glory. We're in the book of glory now. The book of signs was this three-year ministry of Jesus. And there were seven signs. And each of these signs points to the deity and messiahship of Jesus. Now, in the book of glory, we're concentrated in the last week of his life. And Jesus is about to be glorified. Now, two weeks ago, Thomas started this book of glory by talking about Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And Jesus and the disciples are are enjoying this Passover meal together, which came to eventually later on to be known as the Last Supper. And in last week, what we saw is that Jesus predicted Judas' betrayal. He predicted it. He set out, he said, Judas is going to betray me. And if you remember last week, we left with Judas leaving the table and going. Jesus says, go do what you're about to do. Judas leaves, and John, remember, he said, and it was night. 
And there's this darkness and heaviness. But Jesus now remains in the upper room. And now he has just the 11. Just the 11 faithful. Just his own. Just his close friends and followers. And he's about to give this farewell speech. So in verse 31 and 32, Jesus starts by letting us know that uh, he's accomplished his purpose in this life. He says, now when he was gone, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the son in himself and will glorify him at once. There's a lot of glory talk in those few verses. And what I want you to understand is that Jesus understands that his purpose in life and death and resurrection and ascension, his purpose was to bring glory to the father. And he's done it. There's a past past tense to this. He's done it. He's done and brought glory to the Father through his life, the way he's lived it. And there's a future tense to this. There's this idea he's about to bring glory. Now is the time. He's about to go to the cross. He's about to be buried. He's about to be risen from the grave. He's about to bring glory to the Father in his death. And Jesus says that he'll be glorified. The Son will as well. Jesus himself will share the glory that is his because he is in fact God. And so we see this section of glory. And then in verse 33, the text says, My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now. Where I am going, you cannot come. And Jesus uses this phrase, my children, or some of your translations have my little children. This is this dear term of affection by Jesus for his disciples. He's showing you the extent to which he loves his disciples by calling him my little chi- them my little children. But he says, basically, I know you want to come with me, but where I'm going, you can't come. And he's speaking of the cross and his death. Now, eventually he's going to say, you're going to join me eventually. And, and uh, I think he's alluding to not only them joining him in, in eternity, but to, specifically to Peter and the kind of death that he would die. So this is the context. This is how we're setting up this little section. Jesus is talking about his glory and talking about his affection for the disciples, how much he loves them. And then he has this one little verse that's about to set the tone for the entire five-chapter section. And, and it's really just, just these three little words in this one verse. Verse 34, he says to these little children, his dear disciples, whom he loves so dearly. He says, a new command I give you. Love one another. Love one another. Three little words. I mean, do you understand that what Jesus is saying here? His dying words start with this idea of loving each other. Christians should love one another. I mean, you might think, Whoa, hold on, Dave. Like, that's it? I mean, these are Jesus' dying words. That's his new great command, love one another, love other Christians. That's his farewell address, love each other. Okay, I can love each other, you know. Sure, I love everybody in this room. There, I've done it, you know. It's like, Jay, man, I love you. Jake, I love you. Yeah, you know, Bob, you're made. Stetson, man. Oh, Stetson, I love you. Oh, my goodness. I love Stetson. I mean, oh, I, I, I've known Stetson a long time. 
I read. I mean, I can love you guys. Now, you'll get really uncomfortable when I start saying this to your wives, right? Yeah, me too. I'm not going to do that. I mean, you understand? I mean, like you say, oh, I love everybody. I'm a good guy, and I like people, and I love them. You know, I love the church, and sweet, I can love one. I got this one in the bag, you know. This love each other thing, got it taken care of. The problem is, we've confused love with like. We've confused love with like. We assume that God calls us to like everyone. So we do our best to be friendly and nice to everyone. You know, and us Midwesterners, those of us who've lived in the Midwest our whole oh, we love being we don't want anyone to ever be mad at us and we just like to be really nice to everyone and not as not Minnesota nice, not that nice, but you know, like we, we don't want to offend anyone. So we like everybody here. We like being liked, so we try to like people. But see the problem is like is based on affinity. I mean, let's just talk about like for a second. Like is based on affinity. People who share things in common with me or people who benefit me, I like them, right? I like the people who like the bears, right? That's my one football team that has some hope left, all right? I like people who like the bears. If you like the bears, we have something in common and I like you. I like people who like chocolate chip cookies, because I love chocolate chip I really like people who bake chocolate chip cookies and give them to me. Because I like chocolate chip cookies, right? I like people who love, the, who, whose love language, I don't know if you know that concept, but the love language is words of affirmation. Because I love words of affirmation. And people, you know, I think Bob's love language is words for affirmation. He's always telling me how awesome I am. And so I'm like, oh, Bob, you're awesome too, buddy. We get this, you know? I mean, I like this. People who speak my love language. And I like people who are people persons. I like that their, their personality complements mine, and I love spending time with people who are people people. And that's just fun, and I like that. I like people who are loyal to me. I do. I like people who love the sound of music, because I like that musical, you know? I told you that in the blurb this week. You, you've taken my man card from me. I understand, but I like it. I like people who are dumber than me. <laughs> they make me look smart, you know? I like people like that. Like is based on affinity. It's something I have in common or something I get out of the relationship. Jesus did not say a new command I give you like one another. He said love one another. He said love one another. It's really interesting. Um, Chuck Swindoll in his commentary on on John says that there there are three words in Greek for the word love. And two of those words were used commonly. One is uh, the idea of eros, or it's the idea of erotic love. I mean, you know this. It's the idea of passion. You might put romance in that category, you know? That's this, the the feeling when you got, when you saw your spouse for the first time and your heart went, right? I mean, that's, that's that kind of love. And another kind of love that we talked about is phileo or uh, Philadelphia, the city brother of brotherly love. It's a brotherly love. It's a loyal love. It's a family love. I love my family, not always because I love them, but I'm loyal to them, right? And so there's that love. There's this one little word in Greek called agapao, agape love. And really the Greeks in the first century didn't really have a good use for this word. 
They didn't really use it a lot. It was sort of an empty love word. They didn't really know what to do with it. And so the Christians took this word, agape, and they said, ah, we'll fill this empty word up. We are going to redefine what love means and take the word agape love and use it. Love one another. What does that mean? Love one another. Let's talk about agape love this morning. Now, Jesus says a new command I give you. Is this a new command, love one another? Well, not really. I mean, it's not really new because in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, put that verse up there. He says, God says through Moses to the people, the Israelites, he says, don't seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So it's not new in the sense of you should love your neighbor. The Israelites knew this. The Jewish people knew this. This isn't new in that sense. What is new is what Jesus says in verse 34. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. Jesus is redefining what love means. Do you understand how Jesus loved the disciples? Just think about this for a second. Jesus is God in human form. The God of the universe set aside his rights and privileges of God. He limited his rights and privileges by choice for our good. He became God in human form and he puts up with all the disciples' shortcomings. Jesus, I mean, if you think about how much they failed Jesus and how often. I mean, I love the story in the Gospels where, where the disciples are arguing and Jesus says, what are you arguing about? And they don't want to tell him because they were arguing about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to be the best. I'm going to be Jesus. Oh, no, 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 you're not. I am. I mean, they're arguing over this. Jesus is putting up with all this stuff. And these are the guys that Jesus washed their feet. He served them. He just didn't order them around. They said, Jesus, these disciples, they're the ones, Jesus, why couldn't we cast out the demon? Remember that story where the guy comes and the, the disciples try and they can't cast the demon out of this kid? And, and, and you know, they're like, Jesus, we want the power. Give us the secret code, you know, the magic spell. We want it. These are the guys that Jesus put up with over and over again. And this command was new because now it was more than just not holding a grudge. This new love means giving your life away. You see, we say to each other, I like you. I like everybody here. But are we ready to give our life away? That's the kind of love that Jesus is talking about. Love as I have loved you. What did Jesus do? He gave his life. Are we ready to give our lives for each other? Not even literally, but also metaphorically. I mean, are you ready to be so committed to each other? Jesus is giving his marching orders here. Jesus is the disciple. He's the guru. He's the guy that all these disciples have said, we want to follow you. We'll go wherever you tell us to go. We'll do whatever you're going to do. This is his farewell speech. You expect Jesus to give some crazy marching orders. He's like, okay, I'm getting ready to go, but now charge the hill, you know? Or conquer the enemy. Or, you know, in this case, it would be defeat the Romans and take back Israel. I mean, we're expecting Jesus to give this bold command, raise an army. And Jesus says, love one another. 
in his last moment with his disciples, when Jesus is about to convey some of the most important things he should say, he told them to love each other. You see, Jesus is, is, is the telling his disciples, and he's telling all of us here in this room today that the most important thing we can do is love each other. Why is love so important among Christians? Why is this so important that Jesus would use his farewell speech to communicate how the disciples should love each other? Well, there's a couple of reasons here. If you're taking notes, we'll throw them up on the screen. The first reason is because obedience is important for followers. Obedience is important. I mean, if you think about, you know, some sort of hierarchy where you have soldiers and and commanders... One of the most important things for a soldier to do is when they're in battle or when they're uh, not in battle. Either way, it's to follow orders. What do you do? If you don't follow orders, the whole chain breaks down. It doesn't work. The most important thing a soldier can do is to follow orders. Jesus didn't say, a new suggestion I have for you. He said a new command. Loving each other is not a suggestion. It's a command. Christian love is so important because obedience is important. The second reason is because love is at the essence of who God is. Love is at the essence of who God is by nature. God is love in and at his core. Jesus' mission was to glorify the Father, and that's our mission too. We display his glory to the greatest degree when we love to the greatest degree. Can I say that again so you don't miss it? We display God's glory to the greatest degree when we love to the greatest degree. Love is the essence of who God is, and we reflect that when we love each other. The third reason is because the world is watching. Look at verse 35. He just gave them the new command. Love one another as I loved you. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The world is watching. You want to be a follower of Christ? Do you want to display the love of Christ to the world? Then love other Christians. Because when they see Christians truly loving each other, not just liking each other or being nice to each other, but when we, they see us truly loving each other, they see something different. Because the world has the inability to love each other the way Christ has in mind for us to love each other. But most Christians aren't known for their love. They're known for something else. Most Christians I know do a lot of liking. The world can like each other. But the world is not empowered with the power of the Holy Spirit to truly love each other. Most Christians I know do a lot of liking, but not a lot of loving. You may get frustrated when you hear people say this. Because we hear, I hear it all the time. Oh, those Christians, they're such hypocrites and they're so judgmental and mean. Why would I want to be like them? That just frustrates me. It's like you're throwing us all into a, you know, into a pot together and calling us all the same color. But remember... Our love for each other is the only tool 
that Jesus has given to the world to evaluate us. It's the only tool. Forty years ago, a modern prophet by the name of Francis Schaeffer, Schaeffer wrote this in his book, little book called The Mark of a Christian. It's free online. You can look it up and read it. It's a good work. I'm going to read you about three paragraphs here. So hang in here with me. Listen carefully. He says, The church is to be a loving church in a dying culture. How then is the dying culture going to consider us? Jesus says, By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love one to another. In the midst of the world, in the midst of of our present dying culture, Jesus is giving a right to the world. Upon his authority, he gives the world the right to judge whether you and I are born-again Christians on the basis of our observable, observable love towards all Christians. Schaefer continues. He says, that's pretty frightening. Jesus turns to the world and says, I have something to say to you. On the basis of my authority, I give you a right. You may judge whether or not an individual is a Christian based on the love that he shows to all Christians. In other words, if people come to us and cast in our, te- and cast in our teeth the judgment we are not Christians because we have not shown love to other Christians, we must understand that they are only exercising a prerogative that Jesus gave to them. And we must not get angry. If people say you don't love other Christians, we must go home and get down on our knees and ask God whether or not they are right. And if they are, then they have a right to have said what they said. The world is watching. How we love each other is on display, not how we like each other. It's how we give of ourselves freely to one another. So this begs the question, how do we love like Christ? How do we do this? Let me throw out some ideas for you today. I got about eight of them. Here we go. The first way that we love like Christ is by sacrificing for each other. John chapter 15, verses 12 and 13. Just flip over a page. There with me. One page. John 15, 12 and 13. Jesus is elaborating on this command that he's given. Same farewell speech, same context. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. We need to sacrifice for each other. You see, I like you says, I'll tolerate you. I love you says, I'll give up something for you. I'll give up my possessions. I'll give up my time. I'll give up my rights and privileges for you. I'll give up my joys for you. Jesus gave up everything. He gave up everything. This is the gospel. You want to love like Christ? Love like Jesus loved the church. He gave himself for her. Freely. Jesus' death wasn't an accident. He didn't get taken by surprise. He gave himself. He let them beat him and rip his body apart. He let them put those nails in his hands and his feet. He let them hang them on the cross. He let them. He sacrificed 
for you and for me. If you want to love each other, give up something. Sacrifice. The second piece here is by unity. The first is sacrifice. The second is unity. And I'm just going to tell you right now that I'm not going to have time to talk about this because this is a whole message in itself. And when we get to John 17, we're going to talk about unity. What does that mean? You know, uh, unity is some things and it is not some things. And, and we have a lot of misconceptions when it comes to unity. But to be united as the church is to love each other. The third thing. So that's just a teaser. The third thing is diversity. We love each other through diversity. Loving means you put up with people you don't like. Okay, now I understand this word diversity is a loaded word in our culture. I mean, you, we couldn't potentially pick out a more loaded word to use. But I chose it for a reason. Because when the world says diversity, what the world really means is tolerance. And this word tolerance is everywhere in our culture. I must tolerate you and I must tolerate you. When the world says tolerance, they really are saying, I like you, or I'm going to try. When the world says tolerance, I never view it as a good thing. Never. Who wants to be told, well, I don't like you, but I'll tolerate you? That's not love. I'll tolerate you? Diversity says, in the world's view, says, I'll let you do your thing, And I'll do my thing. Just don't get in my way and I won't get in your way. I'll tolerate you. Jesus couldn't tolerate us. He he couldn't stand us. We're We're soaked in wretched, putrid sin. I mean, we stink like manure. We're filthy rags. All our righteous deeds. Jesus couldn't tolerate us. He couldn't stand us. That's why he loved us. And he died for us. He sacrificed everything for people that he probably didn't like a whole lot. The world is watching us because they are tired of being tolerated. They want to see something more than tolerance. They want to see people who love other people who are different than them. Not just tolerate. Diversity in the church is based on the gospel. In Colossians chapter 3, and this is huge, don't don't miss this. You have to understand, in the early church, when Paul is running around from city to city trying to establish churches, and there's a big deal going on. And the big deal is that the Jewish Christians are saying, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, God is for the Jews. And if you want to be a Christian, as as a non-Jew, a Gentile, if you want to be a Christian, you got to become a Jew first, and then you can become a Christian. And Paul, is this debate is raging in the early church. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. God loves people of all nationalities. He loves them all. And so he says, in the gospel, here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. I mean, Paul just kind of mentions everyone he can think of at the moment. But Christ is in all, is all, and is in all. This isn't mere racial diversity. I'm not saying that, you know, 
we, we need to go out and be racially diverse. I mean, to some degree, we just reflect the community that we live in. And so, you know, we're probably like 98% white people here. And, and, you know, to some degree, we probably need to work harder at this because uh, I would take a gander that Waukee as a community is not 98% white. And so we probably need to get better at this. And I would say we have some work to do, but that's not my major concern for Waukee Community Church. One of the things I love about WCC is that we have diversity in a lot of areas. When I look around, we set in our hearts from the beginning to be a church that was diverse in age. It would be very easy to say, we want to reach 26 through 34-year-olds. And that's our target, and we're all going to be a church of 26 to 34-year-olds. Or it would be very easy to say, no, 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 no. We're going to be a church of 50-somethings, and we're going to do it our way. And we don't care about anyone else. I mean, it would be very easy. There's a lot of churches that do that. But one thing we said is we see in the gospel, in Paul's letters, in the teachings on how the church should work, you have older people interacting with younger people. And discipleship happens when older people in the faith mentor and challenge younger people. And I love that about Waukee Community Church. I love that we're so socioeconomically diverse. I mean, we have dirt poor people here, and we have rich people here. We have interests and likes that are across the board different. Our jobs, as you look around, other than Wells Fargo, we got, you know, like <laughs> a quarter of you work for Wells Fargo. But, I mean, we have different jobs and different diverse. I love that. We have actually do have some different political beliefs in this room. I mean, I know it's shocking, but we do. We may have a Democrat in this room. I'm just saying. And praise God. That is great. I mean, that's awesome. I love it. Because the church is people from different backgrounds. and He died for all. There is no Republican or Democrat or rich or poor or, you know, a, a blue collar or white collar. Christ is all and is in all. And in fact, for many of us, we would never spend time together if we weren't part of the church. Many of you, you look around this room and you go, I got nothing in common with you. I mean, some of you are Vikings fans. I got nothing in common with you, right? And yet Jess comes to my office and waves her Viking blanket at me every time she's there. You know, I mean, we would not spend time. Listen, and it's deeper than that. There are people here. I would just never spend any time with you if it was based on our interests or likes or similarities. But we have Christ in common. (laughs) Pay attention just for a few minutes after we're done here. And look who you spend time with after the service. Just look. You go to the same people every week, same people who share your likes and affinities. Or do you go, you know, the gospel says that love means that I'm going to love Christians who are nothing like me. And spend some time with them. That's love. All right, the fourth thing. Service. We sacrifice, we have unity, we have diversity, we have service. We love by serving. When we serve each other, when we go out of the way to, to care for each other, when we go out of the way to say, you have a need and I will meet it. You have something nasty and gross that needs to be done, I'll do it. When we serve each other, we love each other. When I was in high school, my youth pastor used to use this illustration of Jesus washing the disciples' feet as, as Jesus had a towel and he was lowering himself to the nth degree, to the bottom rung, and saying, I, the leader, will serve you. And he used to say, we ought to do that as Christians. We ought to fight for the towel. No, 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 I will serve you. I will take the lowest position. That's service. The fifth thing is attitude. Okay, l- love is a verb. There's a song. 
Love is action. We don't love until we put it into action. But it's more than just action. It's attitude. It says, I choose to see you through the eyes of Christ, and I choose to change my view of you. There are people in the church, and maybe it's your spouse you're sitting next to today. There are people in the church that we have chosen to like, and we've pretended to love them because we know we're supposed to. And we need to ask God to change our hearts. We need to ask God to change our hearts. There are some churches in our country that celebrate a couple of ordinances. They celebrate communion and, and they celebrate uh, baptism. Those are the two ordinances we celebrate. Some of these churches, uh, they tend to be more rural churches, have uh, adopted a third ordinance. It's the ordinance of foot washing. And so they, they say this is our Lord commanded it. And so we're going to literally wash each other's feet. And so they have ceremonies monthly, maybe, or whatever, where they just wash each other's feet. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a cool thing. I'm not totally opposed, but I don't, I'm not sure it's an ordinance that Christ commanded for us. Nevertheless, they do that. Now, because these are in rural communities, I can imagine this scenario on a Sunday morning. Two farmers have been out in their fields all week. And uh, Farmer Bob is not so happy with Farmer Joe. Because Farmer Joe is farming on his ground. Farmer Joe has plotted about 10 feet onto Farmer Bob's property, as so as Bob sees it. Now, Joe refuses to acknowledge this. Farmer Joe says, you know what, uh, that's my property, and we're fine. And so they're in this heated dispute, which is, you know, almost come to shotguns, and it's not been good. Both Bob and Joe go to the same church, and so they show up on this Sunday morning, and Bob, Farmer Bob, who's not happy with Farmer Joe because Farmer Joe's on his land— has to sit down and they discover, oh no, it's foot washing Sunday, <laughs> right? And just so happens that Farmer Bob is assigned to wash Farmer Joe's feet that day. And so you can sort of see Farmer Bob with this towel and Farmer Joe's stinky hog manure feet. And he's pulling off his manure shoes and washing his feet and saying, I'm doing it, but I don't like him and I don't want to do this, but I'm doing it. So many of us are farmer bobs. We go, I'll go to church with that person or I'll be in a small group maybe with someone I don't like. Or I'll stay married to someone I don't like, but I'm not going to like him. God needs to change our attitudes and our actions. And we need to say, God, change my heart. How do we love like Christ? Christ loved to where he was willing to love people. On the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. Can you imagine? The people that have spit on him and tortured him. He had a change of attitude. The sixth way that we can love like Christ is is through forgiveness. There's no greater way to love someone than by humbly asking for their forgiveness. Have you wronged someone? Normally, we're keenly aware about how other people have wronged us, but we're not keenly aware of how we've wronged other people. And we need to say, God, how have I wronged someone? There is, I mean, this beautiful picture of love this isn't like, you don't go to someone you, you like, to you, whom you like and you say, um, by the way, uh, you know, um, I'm swallowing my pride. I've wronged you. Will you forgive me? No, you only do that to someone you love. 
There's no greater way than asking for forgiveness. I've wronged you, brother. I've wronged you, sister. Please forgive me. The seventh way that we love Christ is through vulnerability. The idea that, I mean, Jesus says, as love as I have loved you, there's nothing more vulnerable than for the God of the universe to become a human. I mean, think of God. The God of the universe holds it all in his hands, has this little tiny planet and these little tiny people. And at any time he could just go, yeah, don't like you, don't like you, don't like you. This God became one of us. There's no more. And to the point where he was vulnerable and let people hurt him and abuse him, Jesus became vulnerable. You see, us Christians, we love to put our best foot forward. We show up here on Sunday, you know, we put our happy smiley face on, and then we say, uh, and I'm not telling you any of the struggles or problems I have in my life, because frankly, you're going to judge me and not understand, and that's not worth it. Vulnerability is a key to the church loving like Christ. Christians cannot love each other effectively unless we're willing to be vulnerable with each other. To say, I will let you, brother or sister, into my life. And I will share with you what's wrong. So that through the fellowship of believers, you can love me and help me become more like Christ. That's vulnerability. That's what Christ did for us. All right, eighth way. I knew it was going to be long this week. I say that every week. (laughs) All right, uh, eighth way. And this is really just, I'm trying to put together these other seven into one vivid picture for you, okay? And the eighth way is in our marriages. All these things come together. These seven ways of loving like Christ, they come together in our marriages. We live in a culture, uh, Danny shared a Des Moines Register article with, me this week. Uh, you may have seen it. It was uh, based on a P, the Pew Research Company, and they said 40% of people in our country think that marriage is obsolete. We live in a culture where kids are not raised by married parents anymore. And and nobody, and the marriages they do see are, are ugly and terrible. Uh, someone was telling me they have a friend who not a believer. And she said uh, that, you know, why would I be married? Everybody who is married knows uh, fights and is terrible. And why would I ruin the, my relationship with my boyfriend and get married? And that's what the world sees. Because they said, what's the point? Now, in Ephesians 5, Paul says that our marriages are a picture of Christ. And we are to love each other, husband and wife, selflessly. Husbands are called to love their wives like Christ loved the church, but instead many of us tolerate each other. And we have these horrible marriages that are no different at all than the marriages that the world has to offer. If we want to love like Christ, it starts by loving our spouse, by sacrificing by being truly united, by showing diversity. Most married people I know are nothing alike. I mean, it's amazing. God brings these two people together that have like nothing in common. And in a beautiful picture of unity, they complement each other's weaknesses. But we go, ah. We love 
our spouse by celebrating what's different. We love by serving each other, by humbly setting aside our pride and being vulnerable with each other, by saying, here's truly what's there, by forgiving, by saying, I screwed up, please forgive me, and being patient with them till they can. We're, we love by being vulnerable and having this attitude of Christ-likeness, loving each other when you don't even like your spouse and saying, God, change my heart. But most of our marriages in this country and by many believers in our country don't look anything like that. They look like something totally different. Most marriages work on, he hurt me, so I will hurt him. Or she hurt me, so I will hurt her. I know many a a husband that has never taken the time to cherish his wife. And his wife becomes bitter and the wife says, my husband isn't cherishing me, so I'm not going to be intimate with him. And the husband says, my wife isn't intimate with me, so it's okay if I go have my intimacy fulfilled elsewhere. And the wife says, well, my husband's looking at porn, so why am I going to do anything for him? And so the wife says, I despise him. And the husband says, my wife despises me, so I'm not going to cherish her. And the circle repeats viciously. You see, that's not a love that sacrifices and is united and celebrates diversity and service and attitude and forgiveness and vulnerability. That's a love that says, I don't even like you anymore, but I'm going to try to put up with you. Love says, I will give everything. Did a funeral last week for Steve Nichols' dad, Al Nichols. And uh, I knew Al for 45 minutes. Went to the hospital. He was dying. Went to see Steve. Uh, Steve wasn't there, so I talked to Al. And uh, for 45 minutes, I learned why Steve loved his dad so much. And so I did this funeral, and I I shared with everyone how I knew Al for 45 minutes. And I saw here was a guy that sacrificed and loved and and tried to live his life Christ-like, tried to love like Christ everybody he encountered. Steve was telling me after the the service, a guy came up to him and said, uh, Steve, do you remember me when you were a kid? uh, I lived on the block. Your dad and I uh, were friends there on on the block. And, And, oh, okay. And Steve says, yeah, I remember you. And he says, Steve, I owe your dad everything. Really, why? I owe your dad everything because while we lived there, I lost my job as an electrician. The company let me go, and I had nothing. And you know what your dad did for me? Your dad came to me and said, I'm going to help you start a business. And he bought him a truck, and he out owned like strip malls, I guess, and he said, I got a bay here, it's all yours. Open up a shop in there. Here's a loan to go get some tools and start your own business. Al got this guy started when he had nothing. Friends, that's love. That's Christ-like love. Oh, that we would love each other. And so show the world that we are Christ's followers. Would you pray with me as we close? God, um, we come here today humbly saying, oh Lord, we've lived selfishly for so long and we long to love like Christ, not just to like, but to love. 
Would you, God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, empower us. Empower us to change the world because of how deep our love is for each other. And so today, as we close, God, we ask that your Spirit would pour over us and enable us to love like you've loved the church. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.